I'm going to press record. It can see my... Do you say something? Hello, hello, one, two. Okay, I'm going to turn my volume up high so that you're nice and loud. Okay. <laughs> What's with that rustling? That's me trying to plug my phone in somewhere else that I... We can... <laughs> trying to plug in an extension plug um, on the far end of the bed so that I don't have to actually hang off the bed when the phone's plugged in. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, I'm going to stop. I'm going to technology. I'm going to listen back to that. Okay, that should probably do. Uh, I'm Kian. I'm Andrew. This is Off the Wagon Reviews. Andrew, happy to have you on board. I'm glad to be here, man. Thanks for having us. Tell everybody where you're calling in from. I'm uh, calling in from very sunny Edinburgh. Is it really sunny? No. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, what are we talking about today? Uh, we are talking about perhaps a groundbreaking novel by the name of The Andrethal by John yeah. Darton. <laughs> yes, um, I... Yeah, so this is a book both of us read years ago. <laughs> you kind of threw me there just by mentioning the, the name of the book. I was kind of momentarily thrown. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so why is it you think that uh, you are the right person to talk to you about this book? Why? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, as much as well, anybody could be. As much as anybody could be. I'm, I mean, I'm no world expert on Neanderthals, but uh, my, my undergraduate bachelor's degree i did archaeology and uh, uh in that archaeology course we did actually study neanderthals for a while so i think that's why i'm currently between the two of us the world's um leading expert on neanderthals after yes. john tarton you're definitely beating me anyway in terms of knowing <laughs> stuff about ancient humans you were in just the right place to be thoroughly pissed off and insulted by this book when you first read it i would say because you actually knew a little bit about the subject I think I first read this book. I think I was actually doing the undergrad degree at the time, um, or had just finished it. I'm not too sure. Oh, you must have been like uh, full of righteous indignation. You were ready to be offended. I was ready to be offended. Um, I was even slightly offended at the time, I think. But then, I, in retrospect, it's probably because I was one of those pig-headed undergrad students who thought I knew better than someone else just because I had studied it for a few months. <laughs> um, I, remember, I do remember at the time, yeah, as we, as we were saying earlier, uh, I think it was on your kitchen table um, one night after a night out in town. I think I saw the book. I said Neanderthal. I'm like, oh, a book about Neanderthals. To which point your face just became sullen and morose and your eyes, the thousand yard stare came back. That's, that's just and, my uh, face. That's my Sunday morning face. No, I think this was like, yeah, four in the morning, we were just come back from town, <laughs> and you started to regale me about what the book was about, and I, I remember being thoroughly intrigued at the time, um, and upon reading it, became less and less intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> and that's probably because the, the premise of this book is inherently uh, ridiculous. It, it, in a line, it's about a, a relic band of Neanderthal people who are still alive in the Pamir Mountains in Tajikistan, and they have psychic powers. Yeah, that's pretty much the the premise of this book. So it's it's um, almost impossible not to make that sound stupid when you say it like that. <laughs> yeah, when you read the blurb, there's two ways of making it work. There's one, you either really put your heart and soul into it and you think, wow, this sounds like a really good book, or you just think, in the wild upper reaches of the Pamir Mountains in yeah, Tajikistan. The, Tajikistan, like, yeah. Um, like, 
something extraordinary is happening. <laughs> like, oh, for God's are you sake. are you reading the back of your book now? Yes, I am. <laughs> are you you haven't committed it to memory. No, I haven't committed it to memory, though, unfortunately. Well, I've committed I think mine I, to memory. I think I will. <laughs> because the dust jacket on mine is long gone, and I still remember some of the text that was on it. Well, I can read the, the blurb on the back of my book if you want. Okay, read the blurb. Read the blurb. Is yours a 1996 I mean, edition that has the bibliography at the back? <laughs> mine is actually a 1997 paperback edition with the bibliography in the back, yeah. <laughs> I have a nice hardback, and I would I would take a picture of it to put in the show notes, except there's no there's no cover on it. There's no dust cover. It's just, I'll, send you a picture, I'll send you a picture of my battered copy. It's just um, blue leather. It's a, it's a leather-bound tone. That sounds nice. <laughs> okay, let's, let's have the, the blurb. Well, the tagline is, in the remotest part of the world lies a secret older than mankind. Okay. I see, if you say it like that, it's, it's kind of intriguing. That's pretty good. And then you, you, you get the full blurb. It's like, in the wild upper reaches of the Pamer Mountains in Tajikistan, a gorilla writer vanishes. A schoolgirl is murdered. <gasps> I don't remember that happening. An eminent before. Harvard paleontologist disappears. <laughs> I don't remember the schoolgirl. I remember the gorilla guy. Anyway. I don't, I don't remember the schoolgirl. Kind of reminds me of the. It must be true. Kind of reminds me of the blurb at the back of uh, Boggy Creek. Remember the the hapless, the, the, the near, the terrifying near fatal aquatic encounter that in fact turned out to be not terrifying at all in the movie. <laughs> just happen, yeah, it just happened to be a guy on a water ski, wasn't it? <laughs> and there were some like bubbles in the water. So yeah, yeah, and he fell off. <laughs> yeah. So you know, sometimes the blurbs mislead. I mean, I have to say, I do think the schoolgirl is at the very start. You just hear about her disappearing. I don't think she actually disappears. Like it's not. I was going to say almost on screen, but yeah. it's not on the pages. Okay. Um, but it is discussed at one point. So what happens next in the blurb? Or the, the... Well, see, I have a feeling we're, we're going to give away some massive spoilers Ooh. here. Okay. But then again, it's on the blurb. <laughs> <laughs> it says to a shadowy government agency in Maryland. These are all signs that something has gone terribly wrong with the most extraordinary expedition ever mounted. An expedition that will lead uh, to a staggering discovery on the roof of the world. See, that sounds good. All, the, all those Only, people, see, all those people who buy books without reading the back will now be angry because they've been spoiled. Well, I think the good thing about this is it doesn't really... Like, if you were to take the blurb and not know the title of the book, you wouldn't know what it's about. So, if you were writing advertising I think copy... the real spoiler is the title of the book. <laughs> <laughs> if you were uh, an advertiser writing copy for this book in 1996, uh, would you re- would it be another movie or book you might reference heavily in order to sell this to people? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I'm going to have to think long and hard about this one. <laughs> Jurassic Park, maybe? <laughs> maybe. Does your book have, Jura- have Jurassic Park references on the front and the back? And the back. <laughs> Yeah, mine, mine, I, I remember the dust jacket saying things about your. Basically, it's like, this book is a bit like Jurassic Park. Pretty much is what they said. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much it. I mean, the the critic from People magazine, uh, on the front of the book, and this is just under the book title, it says, Sensational, will do for Neanderthals what Jurassic Park did for dinosaurs. Uh, did they also use some variant of a pun about being Back to the Future? Yes, they do. Yeah, mine did too. On the back of the book, <laughs> it says, Move over, Michael Crichton, a new Back to the Future, a ripping air, wonderful escapism. I definitely think that this, <clears throat> coming out in 96, uh, got 
published, if not written because of the success of probably the Jurassic Park movie and the Michael Crichton books. And actually, this guy, John Darrington, his writing style is very Crichton-ish, and I, I've read a lot of Crichton, and it's it's in the similar kind of, like, it's a thriller, and it's an adventure story, but he, like, did, did loads of research, and he likes to drop in his research at the, you know, at a moment's notice and have characters lecture each other about stuff from science. And it's it's generally pretty interesting and well done, I thought. But I think that's what... I know that's what I initially hated about the book, but now I, I have to say I really enjoy this about the book. All right. That when he has characters actually discussing real theories, I think it really adds something more to it because you can clearly see the guy has done his research. It's almost like he's putting it in because he's done the research. <laughs> it's like, I've done the work, I'm putting it in the book somewhere. <laughs> I've um, done the work, now you have to read it. <laughs> yeah, but it does actually add a lot more because there's some kind of credibility to, to what's going on. Yeah, um, it's so much better than when like you, you read kind of sci-fi books or you read like fiction and the scientists are talking and you think you just this is someone who really doesn't know what what's going on in that field, but is using vaguely scientific terms to make it sound <laughs> like scientists know. Yeah, and I remember you being somewhat grudgingly impressed back in the day with you know his correct use of terminology he has his characters use when they're talking about um, paleontological stuff. Yeah, I mean the. The archaeology in this book, I mean... Am I, am I wrong <laughs> to say paleontology because that means, like, older than prehistory, right? Uh, well, paleontology just means really the study of old things. Um, <laughs> I mean, that, that kind of mostly goes into dinosaurs, but or you can use paleontology to study the Paleolithic, which is like the old Stone Age, and oh, that's okay. pretty much anything from 10,000 years backwards. Um I would probably say, I would probably stick with archaeology, but they do, I think, discuss paleontology and archaeology interchangeably in this book. See, that's um, why I had you come on, because you know these things. I know these, oh, fantastic. See, my, my mom and dad, my degree has come to use. <laughs> I'm going to uh, stop proceedings for a moment just to do a quick little bit, be, a bit of behind-the-scenes magic. Great, everything's working out so far. Let's get into the plot a little bit. I have a, a buttload of notes here <laughs> to talk about. Um, so the book starts off with, like you said, some mysterious disappearances, right? And the very the opening chapters are concerned with something called, I don't know if I'm saying this right, the Codzant Enigma. Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, I think that's, I, don't, I have to say, I don't know what, how that's pronounced, but yeah, the Kodzant Enigma. Enigma. So Kodzant um, is supposedly a place in Tajikistan, but I looked it up and it's not real. I was so sad. Oh no, how disappointing. I know, but like, the way he describes this, he talks about it like, oh, it's this mysterious thing from the history of archaeology and like, graduate students love writing papers about it and it's this unsolved mystery of a... It's like a piece of paleo art, isn't it? Showing a battle between yeah. two types of people and nobody really knows what it means and there's a piece missing, so nobody knows how to interpret it. Yeah, it's almost like if you took the Rosetta Stone, yeah. which has a huge chunk missing, but take out the two translations and only have ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, Yeah, but then do a cave painting version of that. I, I like <laughs> this. I, I thought it was a good kind of Indiana Jonesy kind of a you know MacGuffin to get things going. Uh, yeah, it was it was an interesting little thing to, at least I suppose, get you intrigued. Yeah, and the um, opening chapter is good because it's all about this guy, you know, in the early twentieth century, like making his way through like Soviet Central Asia, tracking down mysterious artifacts in old 
you know, museums and bookshops and stuff. And, it, you know, it's, yeah, you know, like I said, it's kind of Indiana Jonesy. I liked it. Yeah. I, like, I just opened a random page here. Um, it is the, the very first chapter is discussing the history of identifying Neanderthals um, in archaeology and, and how they became identified as an individual species rather than just another uh, fragment of, of human, I guess, yeah. uh, human bone. Um, and it just goes through, and again, quite accurate, um, a good little history of, of who Neanderthals were, historically speaking, how they became identified, how they became known. And once they figured out one little key, they realized that Neanderthals had spread all throughout Asia, Central Asia and Europe. Um, and it was quite a little clever because what he's doing here is he's giving you a very quick historical background to what a Neanderthal is. I've done my homework, now you have to read it too. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Which um, is all very Crichton-esque. And I'm not saying that like maybe this guy was doing that style of writing anyway. But I think it definitely got like a bit of a push because that sort of thriller was popular at the time. And I have to say, well, it's this way is better just, this than is like his debut novel. It's way better than the likes of Dan Brown, you know. I think in terms of writing style and content as well. Yes, yeah, I do think as well. Dan Brown's a bit um, more bubblegum for the eyes, kind of. Nothing in this book annoyed me as much as like a single every single sentence of like Dan Brown's writing. <laughs> I've only ever read The Da Vinci Code, and I remember thinking it was an enjoyable book, but that's all it was. Um, this, uh, yeah, I do agree with you on this one. It's it's quite a good um, it's quite a good read. Uh, he's a nice writing style. It, it it does fill up with tension here and there and then when he wants you, he wants some tension. But I do think as well, it's almost too cliched. Yeah. It's, well, he's definitely. There's, I've made several notes here at points where like he's he's following a, a formula which is like old fashioned adventure stories, right? You know, yeah. people going into some into somewhere wild, and they discover some secret. And like, it's a, it's a lost race novel. It's it owes a lot to Arthur Conan Doyle in the Lost World, and it owes a lot to H.R. Haggard and and you know the, the Wells and stuff. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of Wells. I was just thinking, actually, it is almost the the King Kong story. Um, you go in, there's a giant gorilla. They go in. You think it's a simple expedition, but they go back and actually capture him and. It's almost trying to do that. So I know we're not recording, but I just thought I'd tell you that. No, we we are. Ah. Oh, we are. Oh we no, are. I thought you weren't. That's you shouldn't have said all those terrible things. <laughs> <laughs> but do you not think it sounds a bit? It's almost like he's taken the King Kong story and just put a few little independent twists on it. Yeah, I, like it's there's a formula for these kind of adventure stories, isn't there? That have been is kind of well worn. Yeah, uh, that's one problem I found with this book is. It's original to a point, but then if you take out the key aspect of the Neanderthals, it's not original at all. You could put anything in there. Yeah, it could be dinosaurs, it could be a lost race of, you know, North American ancient people or something. Anyway, what makes it different, I think, is some of the philosophical stuff, which we will get onto uh, when we get to that point in the plot. So after we find out about the the Cobzant Enigma, there's a quick scene of some people going missing. There's like these Mujahideen guerrilla fighters up in the Pamirs, you know, escaping from the, I don't know, who were they fighting at that point in 1995? Anyway, they are, one of them gets killed, and then we cut to our heroes. <laughs> we do. The fantastically <laughs> named uh, Matt Madison. <laughs> Yeah. I'm sure you. I have to say, I just, I, I just knew him as Matt for a while, and it's only when I, I finished the book I realized his name is Matt Matteson. <laughs> yeah. Boring. And like, I'm and sure Susan, you... Susan Arnott. Yes. So Matt is a 
I always imagined that if they had made a movie about this in 1996, he would have been played by Val Kilmer. Yeah, I can see that. Um, do you imagine like actors as characters in books sometimes? I do. Yeah, I, have, I can't remember who I had in my head as Matt Matheson, um, <laughs> but I can see Val Kilmer there definitely. So he's out somewhere in Eastern Africa on a dig. This is, you know, like in in lots of movies and books where you first meet the, the heroes, like you've got to see them. In Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Except instead of like traumatizing kids with Velociraptor claws, he's like bravely uh, avoiding getting involved with one of his grad students, <laughs> despite extreme provocation. Oh yeah, she she comes to his tent. Yeah. He just gets her drunk on whiskey and then leaves it go instead. Yeah, because he's still hung up on something. But we'll come back to that point. (laughs) And then uh, he gets a visitor who's this guy called Van. And Van is a kind of a... I kind of imagine him as being played by Danny DeVito, maybe. No, I have... Have you... I'm trying to think in my head. I think Van is going to be one of those really kind of greasy, slick... Like almost use Carl use Carl sales use yeah. car salesman style. You, you see him as being kind of bigger and and leaner and more. He's a weird character because he's clearly he's clearly up to no good and he's representing some some shadowy organization and he's he's not really telling anybody a whole lot. But he he hires or he tries to get Matt to go and meet his organization and he gives him a letter from his old professor to say that you you need to come and check this out. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. I. I I do think he's very sly. He's very crafty and devious. That's how he's presented at the start. And yet, um, we we find out a lot about him. Like, there's a lot of scenes where like it delves into his own background and his life, and he's not a total villain either. You know? No, I don't think he's a villain at all. I think he's caught in one way because there's one part where he does does reveal himself to be like an utmost scientist, and for the pursuit of knowledge is what's going on. But for some reason, he is. Obviously, up to no good, um, and quite you know being quite nefarious by working with a shadowy organization, and you clearly see that he is, I suppose, manipulative for his own gain, but for the sake of others as well. And it's kind of he's a weird paradoxical character. Yeah, and I think in in other thrillers, these characters are usually very flat and they're very evil and ruthless, and that's it. But I don't know. We spend more time with him, and we find out kind of why he is that way, and he's done some rotten things in the past, but he's just kind of frustrated more than evil. Yeah, he's not doing it um, to be... Yeah, he's as you say, he's not evil. He's just... He's caught he's up in a be- kind of a messed up system. I, and I yeah. actually I like that about this book. Most of the characters like we spend quite a bit of time with and nobody is, is completely like two-dimensional with... Like as a baddie, for example. Yeah, that's that's very true. No one is... I have to say the characters, there's a lot more character development than I remember being in this book. Um, I think the second time reading it, I think maybe I've picked up more um, than before, but yeah. you definitely there's a, there's a depth to the characters, good and bad, <laughs> that really adds an intrigue to it. And I do mean that genuinely. I'm not just taking the piss here. <laughs> I mean, it's still, it's still like a, a kind of a silly thriller, but you know, we, you, it's got some wrinkles in it. Uh, we then cut to the female lead, who is... Um, Susan, and she's a lecturer at a university, and I have written down potential actors for this. I had Sandra Bullock written down, again, imagine this being made in 1996, and then it scratched out, mm-hmm. and then I've written under it Terry Hatcher. <laughs> I can see Terry Hatcher. I had in my head um, a young, is it uh, 
is a Sean Young. I don't know who that is. Uh, she was in. <laughs> she's in Stripes. It's not in Stripes. Apparently, she's batshit crazy in real life. Um, I'm gonna have to just do a quick Wikipedia search to see what film she is, <laughs> <laughs> so that somebody might actually know <laughs> what she what she looks like. So she's lecturing um, these undergrads about, as it happens, about Neanderthals. And this is how John Darrington gets in a whole lot of his information early, because she's, like, delivering vast steaming wads of exposition about, you know, what we know about Neanderthals in general. And that's a pretty efficient way of doing it, I guess. And it's it's, it's interesting and it's well-written. And then it turns out that uh, some... I think it's Van. Van is actually at the at the lecture, and he goes and talks to her afterwards. Yeah. So he's now recruited both of them uh, for this mysterious mission, and I wonder if they have some shared background. Hmm. Maybe they do. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that little point I mentioned about uh, how Matt didn't sleep with his grad students uh, because he possibly hung up on someone. <laughs> could this be? Could this be happening? We'll soon find out. <laughs> and then we meet a guy called Eagleton, who is the director of something called the Institute for Prehistoric Research in Maryland, but they're not who they seem to be. As it turns out, yeah, and he's, Eagleton is a, a very strange character. He's in a wheelchair, and the book like goes on and on and on, like a lot about how frustrated and angry he is about everything. Yes, and he's he's a he's a germaphobe. Yeah, um, <laughs> yes. for some reason, I think that's stuck with me. Oh, the, and I thought, the germophobia. Like, when he first when he first introduced Eagleton, I remember thinking, okay, he's he's a John Hammond style. I can imagine him in his white linen suit, his white shirt, his <laughs> Panama hat, his white shoes, his loafers, um, <laughs> cane in hand. And then as you describe him, they realize he's in a wheelchair and he sits behind a desk in this office where every time someone comes in, he sprays disinfectant and yeah. he washes his hand in sanitizing gel every two minutes. And well, the um, book talks so much about like how humiliated and powerless he always feels because he's in a wheelchair and I felt like maybe this is his only way of like having control over things is you know yeah. controlling his environment so so tightly but what he does I think in the book and it reveals it ever so slowly is he's yeah I do think he, he's very manipulative and he, he's very pathological in a sense of when someone is sitting in front of him he's doing these strange psychological tricks to belittle them He's thinking he's becoming so powerful and clever and wonderful at doing these little hints and psychology tricks to try and mess with their heads that he feels so powerful. Yeah. Whereas in reality, he has that weird feeling of he can do that, but ultimately he's in a wheelchair and he can't really do anything without the help of someone. Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit of a creepy notion. I found that kind of disturbing a little bit. But it does understand, It does bring to life as to why he is. Is it bad to say that he's the criminal of the he's the he's the baddie? He's the yeah, and even he's not demonized, but he's definitely the the driving force behind the the negative powers in the book. Yeah, yeah. I think when you first meet him, you think he's a good guy. He's he's setting this. You know, he's head of this wonderful research institution. And you're kind of with him, but I know gradually you find out that he really is he's not a nice guy at all he's he's a bit like van in that sense of he's kind of caught between two places and in, in one he's trying to do all of this and number two he's doing it for the wrong means yeah. um which i think is a bit of a, a bit of a moral in the book <laughs> okay i'm just gonna pause and check something so it, turn, it turns out that uh, uh he eagleton wants these two to lead a team and go into the pamirs and to find some hidden 
place because he tells them that their old professor has gone missing there, right? They sent him in looking for some evidence of something about Neanderthals, and they, they give him a skull, don't they, that they he explains is like only like 25 years old or something that they found. Uh, 40. Was it 40? And they're all like, what? There wasn't any Neanderthals around 40 years ago. And he's like, uh-uh, not as far as you know. And then we get a little background about their professor, Kellicott, and I've, I've marked this. It's on page 17. Oh, no, it is 25, because the Neanderthals are said to have died out 40,000 years ago. Yeah, because ago, there's that hilarious scene where they're like, they presume he's speaking in shorthand, and he means like 25,000. And he's like, no, yeah. it's not 25,000, it's 25 years. It's 25 years. But what's amazing is, like, in typical kind of thriller fashion, that's the end of the chapter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this book is full of stuff like that. You know the chapter that ends where it turns out that Van, the bastard, was uh, chewing cat, which is like this drug that people eat in East Africa. Oh, no, it wasn't Van, it was his driver doing cut. Oh, was it the driver? Okay. Yeah, because Van is thinking, oh, my driver, he's on cut, this is why he's so lazy and terrible. And uh, they leave, and then Matt looks down, and the driver fell asleep under a tree. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then they look up, and they realize that he actually had been chewing cut, and then that was kind of like a... <laughs> so I want to talk about the professor, right? So here, here's a, a quote that I, I noted. It, yeah, they're talking about when Matt was back, and Matt has like daddy issues. Like his, he never knew his father, so he looks up to he looked up to Calicut as a father figure. And it says, uh, "No one had influenced Matt's life the way that man had. He ruled the powerful archaeology department like a prince." <laughs> <laughs> what, what does that What does that even mean? The students were his subjects. They lived in the hope of being chosen for his digs, joining the elite. Kellicott would prowl the bars of Cambridge with them late into the night, and then they would return to his apartment where he would put on Fats Waller or Maria Callas and cook up a mound of spiced scrambled eggs in a black iron pan that he never washed. He never washed. I remember that line. <laughs> what a badass. So Kellicott's a total badass. and they he's, all look- he's an old school kind of 70s professor. Like he's a stu- he was In my head, he was a student in like the 60s and 70s during the free time. And I mean, if you watch... Uh, this animal house it's almost like the Donald Sutherland style <laughs> um, kind of lecture professor uh, but he's almost mixed between that and Indiana Jones in yeah. the sense of he he does what he wants the the university can't rein him in they try and control him but he, he does it anyway yeah. he's like a, he's a renegade but clearly these guys truly look up to him um, so they they're recruited for this expedition and they meet a whole bunch of scientists who are experts in different things uh, but they don't all know about Neanderthals, so we get to, they get to explain even more. So, like, Susan and Matt are together in the room for the first time. They haven't seen each other for years. And they're, like, they're battling it out because they have different theories about Neanderthals. And then they're, like, sniping at each other professionally. But actually, there's, like, emotional underlying things going on. Yeah, there's, it's like a passive-aggressive just... Yeah. Um, and they're kind of looking at each other and going, oh, yeah, you know, it hasn't aged badly there, you know. <laughs> There's actually a scene like that, yeah. And I think there's a bit where she's thinking, like, oh, I was so angry with him after he cheated on me that I always hoped that he'd get fat, but now he hasn't, and I'm kind of glad. <laughs> yeah, and there's a moment where he, he's looking at her. I think he's eyeing her legs. <laughs> and then he's just thinking, like, wow, her legs are, are really beautiful. <laughs> something like that. It's, it is, that's when we start to realize that there is something between them, that they have a history uh, when they kind of meet each other. This is where I have to say the archaeology got really interesting and the, the theory, the theoretical side of it got really good because I think Matt is a, a big, uh, in huge favor of Neanderthals not actually being killed off, but rather interbreeding. 
um, with Homo sapiens sapiens, so modern humans, uh, where she, I think, supports the Neanderthals were killed off in a mass slaughter. Um, so the two species, modern humans, which is Homo sapiens sapiens, and then Neanderthals, Homo sapiens neanderthalensis. Um, and the two different theories are really the two prevalent theories that we still don't know about archaeology as to how Neanderthals actually died. Um, because technically they have a larger brain capacity. Um, they're a little bit shorter, but they are more robust, they're stronger, they're more agile. There's clearly, I mean, on paper, they are, like if you were to look at Homo sapiens and Homo Neanderthal on paper and say two of them are going to fight each other, you would say Neanderthal is going to kick ass. But for some reason, obviously, they, they died out. Um, and the two theories that they're arguing are really, the two theories that archaeologists are arguing today is, did they actually, did we kill them or did we interbreed with them and we've just become the dominant character trait? And yeah, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of bad jokes with them, like, ribbing each other about, like, having sex with Neanderthals and stuff. As, you know, yeah. as they go through their little p- passive-aggressive phase. <laughs> <laughs> not, not a high point <laughs> no that was definitely one of the the cheesiest and one of the just the most banal parts of the book so they, they um, go on the voyage and they fly off to Tajikistan and the, the author doesn't spend a whole lot of time you know like describing what this new place is like they just kind of get there and then the next thing they know they're in Kozant which is where the Kozant Enigma thing came from <laughs> and they're at the foothills of the Pamir Mountains and they get a letter from, supposedly from the Professor Kellicott, and it's, like, really short and dramatic and, like, completely unhelpful, and it's like, hey, I found something really important, but I'm not going to tell you where it is. <laughs> and yeah. they're, they're just kind of like, yep, that's what he's like. <laughs> yeah, that's true when they go to the the hotel, isn't it? Yeah, they the, the letter gets delivered to them. So they meet a few extra people in the hotel. They meet Rudy, who's a Russian who likes listening to Bruce Springsteen, and yeah. there's a little boy who was on Kellicott's expedition who knows where to go, so he's going yeah, to he get there. Yeah, he was like the Sherpa. I mean, not actually a Sherpa, but the Sherpa style. Yeah, he's like one of the mountain people. So they make their way up the mountain, and they find Kellicott's camp, and his tent is all messed up, and all his stuff has been stolen, and they're like, whoa, something went down here. And then there's a great moment. I think, I, I think it's good to point out at this point, though, that this is the time in the hotel when Matt and oh, yes. Susan are getting really suspicious of Van. Not of Rudy, but of Van, because he's, he's been very uh, withholding. He's, he's not giving them everything when they ask him to, like, what's going on. He doesn't really reply. He kind of skirts around various issues. So they're starting to get really, really suspicious of what's going on and that maybe the Institute aren't <laughs> quite what they seem. He also uh, has and some, then when they get... He has some badass 1996 technology. That he's hiding. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the satellite. He's got this like satellite communication device, which in my head is like as big as a suitcase. And you know, he probably has to go. He has to use it secretly at night by going up on the roof and then like pulling out this huge antennae that's like two meters high. And <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I, in my head. And the, the satellite dish that falls out. And yeah, this is when I think. When they start getting suspicious and when they arrive at Calicut's camp, it's abandoned, it's emptied, and they, they're thinking back to the days of, hold on a moment, Calicut's trying to tell us something, but we're not entirely too sure what. Yeah. Because they're suspicious, they're trying to then keep stuff from Van. Yeah. <laughs> so they're being really, like, they're thinking he's being petty, so their response is to be petty. Yeah. Um, and the, what is it, the, 
the triangle, oh, the triangulation, yeah, so they called it. They noticed that so the we, things in his camp were spread out like an equilateral triangle, so therefore he must have hidden something at one of the points. But apparently that's how he used to, I know it, it explains this in the book as to why, that's what he used to do with his campsites. Right. Um, in the center of the campsite, you make it, uh, you build your fire, and then you put your, your tent and your toilet and your food larder at an equal distance to all three of them, and that's when they realize he's done it here. Yeah. There must be something in the center, and they find the empty fire pit, and there's nothing, and then they realize, well, we wait till the two guys like Rudy and Van go over the ledge and then we'll see what's in here and they find his diary <laughs> oh my god <laughs> it's like a low rent version of like Indiana Jones you know in the map room using the sun to find out where the lost ark is <laughs> but yeah it's almost like as bad as you know X marks a spot yeah in, in the last crusade um, so they find out from his diary that he was being stalked by mysterious humanoids of some kind during his camping yeah I think that's what it is that he he gets to that camp and he realizes that there's something more there. He can't quite figure it out. And this is when I can never remember. I can't remember his name. The the local boy. Yeah. Because he's still with them at this point. He was telling them that he began. You know, Calicut, the professor, would would disappear for an hour and then come back, and then gradually it would become two hours, three hours half a day he'd come back and then he would go explore for a day and then he'd come back then it gradually turned into two days three days four days like a week a week and a half when he would disappear and then come back to the hut and his diary when they're reading it just gets more and more frantic it becomes less detailed it just becomes kind of like a scribbles of a madman and i think he's gone insane i think he's gone crazy because he's up in the high altitude he's just believing this stuff yeah and, but he tells them to go and find some kind of bridge to another world and then it, it appears to them like he's been maybe kidnapped or something so they to me there's this is really like you know the last world the arthur conan doyle book because like in that book when the when the explorers like find the the hidden plateau with the dinosaurs on it like the link between like the regular world and this like fantastic new world is a bridge that you have to cross yeah i remember that and there's a similar kind of thing here so to get to the the hidden spoiler, the hidden valley where the, the valley. Neanderthals are, they have to cross this bridge that looks like it was made by some, like, like it's artificial or something. Yeah, it's it's like a wood and rope bridge, but not ropes. I think it's wood and vine. Yeah. And they look at it and think, well, it's, it's not just like, a, it's not a, a tree trunk across the ravine. It's actually a very well put together bridge. And then they realize that on the far side of the bridge, there's it's like booby trapped. Yeah. And then they think, like, you know, who could have made this? And then they realize that maybe the creatures, as they're, they're referring to them, the, the, the unknown creatures are on the far side, but they're clearly clever enough to do it. But how did they make the bridge in the first place? If they, like, how could they get to either side? I remember that being, like, a very silly, but quite, like, I think it's a page and a half long of, as to why the bridge is there and <laughs> how they managed to do it. Like, just, there's a bridge, like, clearly, John Darton, you're trying to... <laughs> bring this stupid character, like the stupid plot line of there's a bridge between the two worlds and you're trying to explain it away, but you're kind of just drawing more attention to it. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to get his, you know, Joseph Campbell in there. Like, so they may uh, cut, cut a long story short. They get stuck in a snowstorm and they end up like on the other side of the bridge. And I think it's the, like, they wake up the next morning and there's a bunch of creatures looking at them in, you know? Yeah. What, what happens is they, Cut in a snowstorm. It's also fair to point out at this point, 
they realize Van really is being treacherous because crossing the bridge, they think they can't take all the equipment they have, so they decide to leave some of it on the other side of the bridge and hide it away. And that's when they realize that Van had like his satellite phone and um, that when you turn it off, it doesn't actually switch off, but it sends a constant signal to you know the home lab to try and track it down. So he's being really, really devious at this point. They cross over the bridge. Uh, the further up they go, they, it becomes snowier and snowier. It becomes far more treacherous. So they eventually, just before they, they die and perish in a snowstorm, bearing in mind we're still in the first third of the book, <laughs> <laughs> they they find a cave, or Matt finds a cave, and he manages to drag them all into the cave. They light a fire, and they get to sit down, warm themselves, relax. And just when they think they're comfortable and, and cosy, these shadows appear at the cave mouth and they're like, oh my God, there's something more here. They look out and they realize there's a boss of seven or eight like Neanderthals right in front of them. And that's when Matt and Susan go, oh my God, they how, exist. How do you imagine them looking like? Because I, for some reason, my brain makes this awful connection and I, I can't get the image. Do you remember Prometheus and Bob? Remember that animated yeah, they all look like the cavemen from Prometheus and Bob in my head. <laughs> they look like goofy claymation cavemen. Well, I think that was the image of Neanderthal for so long. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have to say I'm kind of torn in one way because we'll never fully know, but I do, that. that's the archetypal or a typical view of Neanderthals in my head as well. You have the caveman with the club behind them. Um, I do think they wouldn't look a huge... Amount different than what we do. They would just have a bit more of a pronounced eyebrow ridge. They wouldn't be covered in hair for. I mean, we don't think, but we don't really know. Um, it's probably just like like a, a really hairy man, um, short and squat. But the way they describe him in this book, it's almost like this is why I mentioned like I think before we started the Harry and the Henderson style. <laughs> the way. <laughs> describe it in the book it really comes up as like oh my god this is what the yeti is oh wow it's very kind of hirsute very hairy kind of creature you can see the skin underneath so it's almost like an orangutan look and feel to them that's what it, like that's what i'm getting from the book here and it's i think it, it's amazing to see like Su- this is where susan and matt kind of go everything we thought about them we think we're wrong <sighs> like if they made this movie something. now they would totally be cgi wouldn't they most definitely like and i do you, like knowing what you do I, do you feel like that wouldn't be the wrong way to approach them like like they're creatures because they're not they're like almost humans they're almost humans but i guess for the sake of the book they're they're creatures yeah i think this this is where john Danton is clearly because susan at the start does talk about how Neanderthal wouldn't look much different. Like you could be sitting in the room and you wouldn't understand, you wouldn't know he's sitting there. Yeah. And then when he describes him, when they first meet him at the cave mouth, um, it is almost like less hairy gorillas. Yeah. It's almost what he's getting at, but they're but wearing these, animal skins. They're, these, they this particular weapons. group that they meet are like really violent because the first thing that happens is they send Rudy out to say hi and they smash his head open with a club. <laughs> And then you're yes. like, oh, holy shit, they're, like, really nasty. And then, because now the big reveal has happened, like, we know that the Neanderthals are there, uh, it cuts to a secret base uh, somewhere near the, the town that they were in earlier, and the Eagleton's associate, his company have a captive creature that they've had for years, and he, he's in a cell, and they're trying to study him, uh, but he's kind of languishing and dying slowly, and it's actually, this part was really effective. I really liked it. Like, some of the... 
you know some of the science that they use to like how to how they explain uh, you know how they study him and stuff i thought was interesting and he's kind of slowly hinting now that the the neanderthals have some kind of abilities or, or mental powers and it, it starts subtly it starts off with like some guy enters the base and he notices like these empty bottles of headache pills everywhere <laughs> Every, yeah. everyone who works there gets migraines constantly and there's a, a guy uh, who works there who hates walk he won't walk past the the, the cell where the animal is because you know it gets into his head and messes with him and i quite like this stuff it was creepy yeah, and then and then he finds when he's brought to the cell by the Irish guy, there's the Irish scientist brings him in, and he gets to see the the creature, the, the hominid, for the first time, and then he realizes why those headache pills are there because his head starts to slowly fill and his pressure starts to to encapsulate inside his skull, and then he realizes that something more is going on and he starts to I suppose become you know, agonizing headaches and then as they bring him away it disappears yeah and it's like a little subtle in joke is like oh all the headache pills what's this all about <laughs> oh now i know <laughs> I, th- there's a very specific kind of like mental abilities that they have in the book and like on its most basic level what they can do is they can see what somebody else sees so it's like they can put themselves behind somebody else's eyes and it gets yeah. it gets more complicated than that but that's like the base level of what they can do and that's what we find out about first and it's it's described pretty coherently and it's it's used you know like when you're when you have some fantastic element in a story you've set up the rules and then this book sticks to the rules pretty well so yeah because i think when you first find out that there's the, the extra ability or the special ability these creatures have it, they, everyone starts to think, oh, it's like extrasensory projection. Like they're they're clearly able to understand each other without having to to speak. And um, this is something that they have, you know, achieved because their their brains are larger. They have a bigger cortex in certain parts of the brain. Um, and then it's very quickly told it's not extrasensory projection. It's more like remote viewing. They're not actually able to communicate, but they can they can feel what you're feeling. Yeah. So they can't project an idea to you. They can only sense what you're thinking. Now, everything so far, I, I really enjoyed. Like, I read this book a few times over the years, and I, I always got up to this point. And I, I liked the kind of Indiana Jones stuff, and I liked the the like the voyage to try and find the creatures and the, the initial exploration and stuff. And then it always lost me at this point, because what happens next is, you know, it cuts back to the, the team up in the mountains, and they had first met the like the aggressive neanderthals and then the next day they get rescued by another tribe of like gentler ones and at this point i always got really bored because it's like oh he's going to he's going into like good and bad tribes you know and it's going to be black and white and it's like got to have the got to have the baddies got to have the goodies and like it just it really became flat and less interesting to me young, when i was younger and at this i finally stuck with it and finished it and it does get better you know it does i mean i'm with you on that one i have to say reading it when you start to when you come across the the, the, the evil creatures they're, they're trying to kill them and then they're trying to escape through the cave and you know they eventually do and just before they're killed off you know they wake up in this wonderful eden style yeah. paradise yeah, he, uses the, he uses that word like a lot yeah matt panics and thinks oh my god they're going to kill us and then susan appears like no no it's okay these ones are good yeah and i always thought it was boring the good and the bad ones like yeah it was really it's really bad because his his definition of good and bad is like you know bad is violent good is peaceful and calm and it becomes that almost like childlike view of good and evil yeah um which i guess you know good and evil you do want to paint as black and white 
I think what he's trying to pitch here, and I, I do say, I do think this is where he falls short as well. He tries to pitch the really good Neanderthals that you know they're 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 friends with, I guess, by the end, um, <laughs> as being this wonderful kind of utopia style. There's no violence. There's no hierarchy. Everyone is equal. They're all they're very on the socialist. level playing field. Uh, yeah, it's incredibly socialist and communist. And that's partly and as then, a result of their abilities, because they're all in communication with each other all the time, and they actually have no sense of individuals. So, like, when one person dies, you know, the whole tribe, a part of them dies. and Yeah, and they all suffer the pain as they're dying. Yeah. And there's a lot of, to you know what, in fairness, there's a lot of, it does get more interesting than the kind of good and bad thing, because there eventually, there's a lot of anthropological stuff where, like, the, the two main characters spend like I don't know how many weeks or months in the valley with the with the tribe, and they, there's a lot of time spent on you know how they deal with death and you know how their tribe works and what their social dynamics are, and you know given that they have this ability to communicate with their minds, you know all that stuff is different than with humans, and you know it's it's he spends a bit of time in that and it's kind of interesting. <laughs> you don't sound and it is interesting because. Again, one of the things is it's really fun. I think this is where he's clearly having fun with his homework, where he's he's obviously read the various theories about Neanderthals that he sets up in the original chapters of the book, and now he's it's almost like he's having fun destroying all of that because Susan and Matt are like, oh my god, we thought it was this, but it's actually that. Wow! Yeah. Like we thought they would have had you know so much going on, but they don't eat meat. They're vegetarians here. Yeah. Might almost go as far as saying they're vegan. They just eat fruit and berries, but they're still big and strong. Oh my God, this is really <laughs> hard. Like, oh, theory broken, theory smashed, theory broken. And I just read that as John Darton just having fun. Got to go, what's that? This is a, this is an established belief about Neanderthals? Not anymore. <laughs> and I kind of enjoy that. Now, one thing I found really interesting during that whole setup about good and bad is... There is a bit of an underlying Cold War theme going on. Yes, and that's um, not an Because accident. Eagleton at the Institute is like, as long as we get there before the Russians. Yeah. And you're like, oh, no, this is going to be a cheesy kind of well, it's Cold War hang-up. Right from the beginning, he is mentioned as like an, does, old, an old Cold War warhorse, like who would, was in yeah. the CIA or something back in the day, probably. Yeah, it, it does. But I, even before you even experience that, it almost feels like it's going to be a Cold War hang-up. It is a massive Cold War hang-up. At least Eagleton keeps it that way. It's like, as long as we get there before the, the bloody Ruskies, that kind of feeling, or damn those commie reds. Yeah. You're sitting there going, oh, wow. And then what? I don't know whether he did this intentionally or not, but it's almost quite intriguing to see when they get to the valley that, the good versus bad Neanderthal groups are almost the opposite of what you'd expect in a Cold War novel. Yeah, because the good Neanderthals are kind of socialist. Massively socialist and communist. Everyone is equal, no one is above the other. But then the bad have like a, a social hierarchy with one man leading them, like the yeah. violent Kiwak. Um, <laughs> and like they're all, they all, although they all live together, they, they clearly live in family structures. They clearly yeah. live this and the other. And the, the bad Neanderthals are almost, in my head when I was reading it, thinking like, wow, this is like an allusion to America. Whereas oh, the other yeah. Neanderthals are almost like an allusion to what would be the ideal communist standard yeah. and the um, book is ambiguous about which one it really s- thinks is better because they mention frequently that like even though the violent ones are horrible they are more advanced their their society is more sophisticated they you know they have they're better at making tools and their family structure means that they're you know able to achieve more things and that they're on they're on the road to civilization in a way that the other neanderthals aren't yeah and that's what 
an interesting thing that, as you mentioned, like the, the, the I was going to call it the Kami Neanderthals. That's not right. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the in the valley rather than in the cave, because um, the bad the bad guys live in a cave. Um, clearly, that's why they're bad. <laughs> <laughs> the the valley they're very, as you said. I suppose. I think I forgot what I was trying to say. You know. <laughs> completely forgot what I was trying to say. Shit. It's okay, I'll cut it out. Yeah, please do. <laughs> what was I trying to say? Oh, I had a thought. I wrote down, um, we were talking about H.G. Wells earlier, there's kind of shades of the time machine because he finds, you know the time machine? Uh, yeah. Where, where this guy in England in the Victorian times like goes thousands of years in the future and he meets like these nice peaceful kind of physically weak people who are the alloy, and then he thinks that's great, but then after a while he realizes that they're just like cattle who are being bred by these horrible Morlocks under the ground, and that they're just like a breeder population, and that's what happens here, where he finds out that the, the bad Neanderthals, you know, are like... Yeah. I didn't really like, like that so much. They're like yeah, people who ran away from the, the nice tribe because they were just too violent or whatever. Yeah, they're called the renegades. <laughs> that's what Matt and Susan call them. Um... No, that's what I was trying to get at. Uh, the idea of you're right, like the renegades are the ones who are closer to civilization because they're far more advanced. They they're thinking for themselves. They're breaking the mold. They're going this way and the other. Whereas the in the valley, it's almost like they're just benign. Like just yeah. the only difference between them and a monkey is they're not in a tree. But they're not. They're stagnating culturally. Yeah, and there's it all these like these constant like references to like. Eden and, and you know the breaking of Eden and there's to- a lot of total prime directive stuff where it's like you can't come in here and change this system it's been like this for thousands of years and it all comes from Kellicut because they, they find out that he's living there as a kind of a <laughs> hippie kind of elder hippie leader. hermit yeah. yeah it's almost like he's found his proper coming but he he gets kind of evil here he goes kind of bad in the book because he doesn't want them to interfere and then like they have to go and they find out that Van is still alive and has been kidnapped by the bad ones so they've got to go rescue him but then Kellicott's like no you can't teach these people how to fight because that would be changing the system and they're like yeah that that was a very fascinating thing you're right like Kellicott in the middle of these hominids saying like why are you here you can't come in here you're going to change the fabric of society I'm like but you're here like he's, he's unwilling to accept that he's already done and broke that kind of wall he's already done exactly what he's telling Matt and Susan you don't do don't come into a society if you want to truly observe you observe from afar you don't go in there and but at the same time up. most of the observations that the, the bad hominids are, are more sophisticated and more civilized and more like humans most of that comes from him he's the one who points that out all the time so yeah that's true it's I, almost like he's becoming that in his head that godlike figure of perfect anthropology and I do think, like, you're right, like, the book kind of sets it up. I think I remember that earlier point. <laughs> the book sets up, you're never too sure who is the good or who are the yeah. bad. Like, Neanderthals, it's it's a point of view. The renegades are bad because they're violent and kill. The good Neanderthals are, like, stagnant. They're, they haven't really gone far. They can't grasp the idea of hunting. They can't kill an animal. I um, almost but it's feel actually like... entirely humans. Like, it's almost Calicut is the one who's saying, this is what's happening. And because he's human, he's labeling and defining it. Yeah. I almost feel like the author's, um, like, his sympathies really are with the, the bad ones because they're eventually going to be more human-like and more sophisticated. But for the sake of a book, you know, you've got to have a climax where, you know, the, the you fight the baddies. And, or at least that, like, it would be better off leaving the peaceful ones to their peaceful ways. But again, 
got to, you know, the, the characters have got to arm them and teach them how to fight so they can go and have a big climax. You know, yeah, I feel like his 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 necessity the necessity of writing like a thriller with a big ending is conflicting with some of the philosophy that he's probably more into. Yeah, I think the philosophy they do discuss it's in the book at one point is to say, well, actually, both tribes are perfectly fine, like both work independently of each other, but clearly the renegade. It do come down to the valley for raids, whether they take yeah. the women or the kids and bring them up to their camp and, you know, control them. But at the same time, it has happened. It's happened naturally that two of the groups have split off and branched into two different directions, which is actually an interesting theory. And there's a lot of... Doesn't it means that the, the Eden isn't actually as perfect as they think it is because there still is the potential within every one of those creatures to be that evil, um, bad Neanderthal, I guess. Yeah. I'm going to read something from page on 241 about the bad Neanderthals, and it says, this is Calicut, I think he says, you've seen how they live and what they've accomplished. Think, for God's sake, they hunt. That means they have to cooperate, they have to work together, they have to plan attacks, take six or seven men to bring down a large animal, so they have to assign different tasks. One sets a snare, one beats the bushes. They have to think ahead and project themselves into the future. Uh, they yeah. eat meat so their protein intake is higher. That makes them stronger. They cook the meat over fire to make it taste good and to preserve it. They wear skins. They decorate their cave. There's a division of labor with men out hunting, women staying home to tend the hearth and raise the children. They live in family groups and they have a social hierarchy. He makes a, a direct connection between their violence and their their civilization. Yeah, I think it's in, it's quite clever, that little... I, I do think this one is quite clever because... He is helping to say that they're not actually violent. They just, they are. Yeah. In my head. I think that's what he's trying to get at. Like, you know, fair enough, they're they're violent, but they're actually all, this is where he's trying to say that and they're this the is the bad character talking about, to break the mold. you know, this is essentially the bad character talking about the villains of, of the books. And they still, every character gets their piece spoken, you know. It's, the the ethics and the the philosophy is more complex than you'd expect for a book about psychic Neanderthals. <laughs> You know, like, the baddies aren't just bad, they actually get to... And here, uh, what was I looking for? There's a... I think, I think what he's done here is he's, he's, he's not been black and white, Darrington. Yeah. I think it's quite nice because Calicut, again, was, like, this, like, hero to Matt and Susan, and because he's telling them what to do, and they disagree with him, he's almost like he's becoming the bad guy within that fraction. But he has a point, you know? He's not... He does have a point, but that's like he's not actually a bad guy, he's just... It's like the wild crazy man in the woods that you meet at the start of those yeah. really bad horror movies. Well, He's like, don't go into the woods on a Friday night because this will happen. And then the kids go in and someone dies and the old man's like, I told you. And again, for the sake for the sake of the plot, like, Darrington has him turn evil and he betrays them at the end. And it's like a bit sad because up until that point, you know, he's disagreed with them, but his points have made sense and he's been, he's been weird, but, he, you know, he has a point. Yeah, and again, I think... It shows Darrington's ultimate flaw, uh, not Darrington, Calicut's ultimate flaw as a character as well, where when he does betray them at the end, he's interfering with what's going to happen. Yeah. And it's, it's almost like he's saying, don't you dare interfere, but I'm going to interfere and it's okay because it's me. Which I guess Susan and Matt do discuss at one point when they first see the Neanderthals, they realize there's like this wonderful commune going on. It's like, but there's no sense of self. There's no ego. There's no yeah. you because every creature can communicate through that like remote viewing that you don't have your own thoughts because someone can enter your brain your mind at any you know any instant to, to figure out what's going on Here's, whereas 
Here's I think they're saying that that's a very human point of view, and Darton, and uh, Calicut, I should say, um, is written to really show that within the humans that he's he's thinking about himself as well as thinking about them, but ultimately he's thinking about himself. Yeah. Well, here's his him talking about the like non-interference. He says, "Don't get involved. Don't take sides." But you took the side of the Pacific hominids. I can see the temptation. Of course, they're wonderful souls, truly innocent, truly good, no, and noble. They're you know the whole noble savage thing there. Oh yeah, that noble savage thing keeps popping up. My bloody hate. <laughs> she. So Susan says really... maybe the, maybe the strong shouldn't always survive, because he says uh, nature has made her choice, and as always, she sided with the strong. And she's like, well, maybe they shouldn't survive. And then he says, he says, shouldn't doesn't have anything to do with it. They're strong because they're supposed to be strong. If the renegades pick the others off one at a time, it's because they're destined to. So there's like, he's kind of like this kind of, well, you know, nature takes his course. And they're all like, America, no, we get stuck in when we, when we want to do something. And it goes, that goes right back to, you know, the Lost World and, the, and, and the, these old novels about lost races, you know, like uh, King Solomon's Mind. You know, the white characters always get stuck into the politics and they usually start a war or a genocide or something. You know, yeah, for what they believe is the yeah, they never leave. They, they, they never leave it good, be. and they realize you know these guys are getting the shit kicked out of them by this other tribe. All right, let's go and teach them to you know kick ass back, and it yeah. just ends up with total slaughter. And at the end, they're like, "But still, our side won, and I'm not dead as a white man." And that's inevitably what happens in these thriller books. But at least this book, more than most, spends a lot of time examining the different points of view before kind yeah, of caving in inevitably to that conclusion. <laughs> Yeah, and that, that's one thing I found really kind of disappointing because the one thing I really loved about this book is that idea. You get every single point of view. You get, you know, Calicut is trying to say one thing, Matt and Susan think another, but they always inevitably cross wires and they cross paths. They then come from the same point of view but from a different perspective. And it's, it's really interesting to see that they're, the book is entirely uncertain, as you said earlier on, yeah. which is good, which is bad. And the whole the rest of the book is still, even to the very end, like unsure as to whether, yeah, like it, like are they actually bad or are they actually good or what's going on here? Like it's almost like there's, it's not black and white. It's definitely a it's, wonderful kind of colorful spectrum of even even right at the end when they like they've decided that they are going to interfere and it's the right thing to do. There's all these scenes with like Kiwak, the leader of the bad Neanderthals, like going around with a gun, you know, like as a symbol of their interference in this perfect world. Like they've brought you know weapons into it. And he's yeah. gone around like and there's really disturbing scenes with him like going around shooting people and it's like you know it reminds me of you know when Europeans went around the world and like the very first thing they did was like start trading weapons with people you know and change their society forever and you know he's not afraid to use that kind of potent imagery to say this shit is not always good you know yeah that's that's what makes very even nice while the climax is happening and they're you know scoring the ultimate victory and all that so. There's, there's cool scenes like inside the caves where you see how the, the bad Neanderthals live and how sophisticated they are. And then I like the scene where she finds the original Code Sans Enigma, like she finds the cave painting, and it chronicles some historical battle between the humans and the Neanderthals. Yeah, that, I have to say I didn't like that at all. <laughs> it did add some nice little, I suppose, plot drive. It's the only thing I can get to get to it. I mean, it was a nice little... I thought initially it was a nice little twist. I'm like, oh my God, the Codes Enigma isn't actually... You know, the Neanderthals who are still alive still use this as a moral message. Oh my God, we could figure out what's going on here. But ultimately I thought, no, come on, that's so kind of... Ah, just hammy. It's, it is hokey. 
very hooky. I mean, I, I do think you're right about the whole like Kiwak walking around with the pistol on him. He doesn't know how to use it, but he knows it's a powerful tool. And yeah. because he's the leader of the renegades and the one who's ultimately grabbing control through power and strength and might, he's the one who has it around him. He doesn't know how to use it, but he still walks around with this pistol around his neck. So, and then Susan and Matt are like, oh my God, that's terrible. He has the pistol. Oh, we're, like he's going to do so much damage with it. Yet they're oblivious to the fact, as you mentioned, that they're the ones who brought it with them. They're, and they're the training everyone in. else to like be warriors and... It's weird. I, 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 I don't know where the author's sympathies really are, and I, I kind of feel that the, the ending of the book happens because that's what has to happen in a thriller, rather than it's because he really believes that interventionism is the good thing, you know? I'm not convinced. Yeah, I think, I think the, the end of the book comes around because he needs an end for the book. Yeah. I think he was writing it, and I do think this is where his homework has come into play. Because he has done so much research about it, I think he's undecided himself, and that definitely yeah. comes across. Like, yeah, there's that wonderful scene. I just, for some reason in my head, I always think of that, that scene in Robin Hood Man and Tights when they're learning how to fight. You see it in all those kind of historical <laughs> epic movies. The peasants, the villagers are brought forward because they need men. They're, yeah. they're taught how to Man, it would be king. take a bow. And, yeah, they, yeah, exactly. They do it there. Um, it's even bloody outlander. Uh, <laughs> this idea of, like, the peasants who don't know how to fight are being taught how to fight, but ultimately they're doing it for righteousness, they're doing it for a good cause, and because of that, they'll win. It's, very, it's a very American attitude, isn't it? Like, now. It is a really American, yeah, a very, it's an act, what's even more interesting, it's a very violent attitude. It's like, you can't come out of it peacefully, you have to fight back. And yeah. I think that's what America does, it's like a knee-jerk reaction. Um, but what's amazing is, like, they're trying to teach these guys how to fight, but they don't know how to do it. They're terrible at it. They're really awful. They, they keep trying. They keep trying. They still can't do it. And eventually, like, about four or five of them learn how to pick it up slowly but surely. And that kind of really annoyed me because, like, they're talking about these hominids unable to grasp the concept of weaponry and killing, yet every single one of the renegades in the mountain came from that same fucking tribe. That, yeah. They kind of hint that, and, like, there's some small genetic difference that, just crops up once in a while and that that's why they're more receptive to it or something or else is, I think and the other possible reason is that they're it's inherent in everyone but as a society they don't want that people there so you know they tried to initially control them they couldn't and therefore the renegades left because they were being controlled for yeah. just being different and I just found that a kind of an interesting point of view to say actually that violence is inherent in everyone like yeah. the hominids I guess but you know kind of pretty much talking about mankind as well yeah and it's just how you control it or how you don't control it like do you accept it and just become you know violent or do you as a group control it and say we don't want it here move on and then gradually you know two factions come up and your war your warring faction and your peaceful side of life and susan realizes that the point of the the, the pictograph and the and enigma is to warn the neanderthals of the future that humans are untrustworthy and they will they will deceive you and they are because apparently in the end of those are incapable of, you know, like deceit. So it's, it's yeah. like a warning about that. And she's like, oh, this is going to be the key to defeat the evil ones. And they, they come up with a plan that's kind of like a like a Trojan horse kind of a thing, which just made me think about the Monty Python and the Holy Grail. To be honest. That's exactly what I had in my head when I was thinking about <laughs> the this. The giant like, rabbit. The giant rabbit, yeah. There's some I good stuff, it's, though. It's, it's fair to say at this point that Susan has figured this out, but then she gets captured. Oh, yeah. And by the bad Neanderthals, and she's kept inside the caves, and Matt has to go and save her because at this point they are back together. They're, yeah. I suppose, a couple. They're doing that kind of 
weird thing of well they won't date yeah they did it's pretty clear they're gonna have to because it's a book um <laughs> stupid thriller novel they get together and he has to go down and save her be the the man in the relationship and yeah she gets she, he, he she has figured it out but he doesn't know it at this point he comes up with the idea independently after she has left the drawing in one of the huts and he's like oh my god what's this but she also she also manages to figure out how to use the mental powers because they've all been practicing to try and learn how to do it and at the crucial moment she's able to send him the idea i don't know if that actually she sends him a single word she sends him the yeah, word deceive. deception, deception, deceive, deception, deceive, yeah. deceive, or something. And I, mean, I guess it's I, left open as to whether or not that's what it worked or not. Yeah, but then I mean, there's a, there's a horrible moment where he was like, I, "That's when I came up with the plan," and she's like, "You <laughs> did you?" I smile and I'm like, "Yeah." <laughs> but there's a similar um, scene yeah, where Ke- Kellicut goes to betray them to the to Kiwak, and uh, this, is, this is so cheesy, but I really like it. So it's like obviously the bad guy gets his comeuppance, you know, for being you know for betraying them. So he goes and. He he goes to Kiwak and he's like, "Oh, here's what they're going to try and do." And then he suddenly gets, a, you know, after I don't know how many years of, uh, well, or how many months of trying to learn how to do the psychic powers, he finally gets his breakthrough and he sees a vision and it's the back of his own head. And he's like, "Huh? Why am yeah. I seeing the back of my head?" And then, like, obviously, some minion comes up comes up behind him and smashes his head in. And it's so cheesy, but I loved it. But it's even cheesier than that because it talks about as he dies, he has that element of bliss because he has now or hopefulness because he has learned the power and he's like oh my god I've learned it at that moment he's like yes I finally boom and when he dies his head rolls over <laughs> and as he dies there's I think it actually says I can't find the page uh, it actually tells that Kellicka dies with this look like perfectly ingrained in his face like he doesn't die in shock and horror he dies like with a smile <laughs> because he's eventually learned it and it's like kind of ah and you later see some kind of ceremony where Kiwak and the, the bad guys are like eating his brain or like they have eaten his brain. And it's kind of yeah. because there was arguments at the There's cool stuff. I actually quite liked when like all the arguments they had at the beginning of the book that were like archaeological arguments are now they're discovering this stuff for real, like whether or not they're cannibals. And, you know, I like all that. Yeah. And Darnton is not cheap with his with the death of his characters either. Like they always get a good amount of time, even the characters that in other novels, you know, you're just like, oh, that character is obviously baddie. They're going to die, and it's over in two minutes. Like, they, you know, Van gets a kind of a semi-heroic death, and then they really take their time with funerals, and you know, it's like he really gives a shit about these people, even the ones that are just there to get the plot going. In my head, the funerals, I have the. I think it's from Return of the Jedi. <laughs> when, when Vader dies, it's that kind of all he walks around over the age. That's what I have in my head when they do the, the funerals in the valley. But yeah, I do agree. Like the everyone gets a nice come up and everyone gets a nice death. Like those who are deceptive, like Van or Calicut, they kind of get what's coming to them. But at the same time, there's an element of redemption because yeah. they get what they get what's coming to them in a bad way, but they also get to die in a way that is suitable for them and in a very happier way. Like Calica gets the projection. He's one that he gets it. He's like, fantastic. I've made a breakthrough. Then he's killed. Van, mm-hmm. as you say, he's a kind of that really sly character. And just before he dies, he is like, how dare they? You know, we're mankind. You know, I've been treated like shit all my life and I'm going to fight back. And now he stands up and just when he's about to do it, he gets killed. But he's very defiant and he's like, you know, a weedy little character. This is why, like, in my head, I think he's a weedy little character and snaps and does it, like, you know, shouting, beating on the chest, how dare you? Come and fight me like a man. Boom. And he's killed. I'm like, it's it's quite a nice little 
Yeah. Like little things like that, I thought that made this little book quite good. It's yeah. It's a. So they they get out of the valley and they they realize that they can't. This is standard like late twentieth century version of the old adventure stories. When the characters get out, they are, they're always like, oh, "We can't tell the world about this, or it will be destroyed." Like, it's really funny if, yeah. you, if you read older books like. Um, Edgar Rice Burroughs, like who wrote a lot of Lost Race stories, they're all the character always like, can't wait to tell the world about this so we can go and exploit the shit out of it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they really are. Like, the, yeah. hero, the heroes are always like creating like these horrible industrial, you know, civilizations out of the magical countries that they discover. But this book is more like, no, oh, we can't tell anybody. And all of Eagleton's men that he sent to track them down, they, they all die in a helicopter crash and. Uh, there's yeah, this huge subplot that just goes nowhere with those guys. <laughs> they all die. <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah, when the the helicopter crashes, Kane, isn't it? Yeah, and like I don't know why he's even a character because nothing comes of him. And then yeah, it feels like a, a failed subplot because they don't quite get there. There's a helicopter crash; yeah. they all get killed. I, mean, the, I understand the, that like he's trying to build up this tension that maybe the the institute are going to send their military dudes to this last world and everything's going to go. You know, everything was going to be ruined and spoiled. And then it doesn't happen, which is fine. But he just, he spent so much time with those characters, like, and it's, it all comes to nothing. And it was weird. Like, the, he could have left that as a threat in the background. And and nothing yeah. would have been lost. But anyway, they, they get out of the valley and they find out that they have nothing to worry about. Those guys all died. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But what, like, coming back to the point of them being, like, found in the valley or they, they leave the valley and they're doing it. Like, we can't tell the world because... You know, the hominids will be destroyed, and they're completely oblivious to the fact that they have actually ruined the society themselves. Yeah, like they have come in, they've they've due to this deception, they've, they they save Susan, but they end up causing an avalanche that kills all the bad Neanderthals, the evil ones are outside in the snow. They all get killed when the rocks and the the avalanche you know takes over and just destroys them all. And then the good Neanderthals move into the caves inside as well, and they're like, oh, good has triumphed. Thankfully partly because of human deception again and we've gone and we've destroyed the world but we can't tell anyone because the world that we've just destroyed will be destroyed yeah it's a bit confused the, the overall message is confused so they get back and they meet Eagleton and they're like yeah we, we didn't see anything we, we wandered around in the snow for a few weeks and ate some berries and survived and nothing else happened <laughs> yeah Van died couldn't find Calicut all this that and the other yeah it's a bit of a, an anti-climax ending to a point because at least in my head, it was a bit of an anticlimax. But I mean, I think that's what's interesting about this whole novel is you're, you're never too sure what is actually going on. And I do think he's undecided. Yeah. And even at the very, very end, he is undecided as to whether it doesn't work. So, uh, final thoughts, would you recommend this? Do you know what? I really would. I remember the first time reading it, I would definitely say, don't you ever read this as a pile of, like, toilet paper it's best as a way to use it but now I have to say I really really love the book um, yeah, I enjoyed it. it the message is confused but there's there's more going on uh, with, you know than your average kind of goofy thriller and I'm a little bit sorry that this guy never was as out there as like I mean he's not as good as Michael Crichton but he's doing very similar things at a similar time and it's just weird that he didn't get more exposure because he wrote, he wrote a bunch of other books as well and I wonder what they're like I know. I was thinking I might actually start reading his other um, his other novels, but I do wonder though: is he is this book really famous because of the success of Jurassic Park? Quite, I think second reading, I would definitely say yeah, go read it. It's, uh, it's cheesy, it's hammy, but it's good fun. It does make you think. All Enjoy right. it. Any other final you, thoughts? 
the other final thought is uh, one of the things I love about my edition book and I'm glad yours has it as well he's clearly done his homework so much that he's put the bibliography in at the back <laughs> I just love that I see that's, that's not weird to me because I like Crichton always does that and I've been reading his books for years to me, it's fantastic. That <laughs> this is a this is a novel that you're meant to read as just a bit of enjoyment. But again, in that idea, I keep going back to it's clear that John Darton has done his homework on the Neanderthals, and he wants you to share the homework. <laughs> and he's put in everything he has read, or at least relating to the Neanderthals, that you should read. And I thought I really enjoyed that little piece. Okay, that's everything I have to say. I think that's everything I have to say as well. All right, let's sign up. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Enjoy your day. <laughs>